Father, how grateful we are for those magnificent words and the magnificent truth that though our faith is often frail and things happen around us, that we are just about to let go. For those of us in Christ, for those of us who know you, for those of us who are your sheep, we know that you will never, ever lie to us, forsake one of your promises, that you will hold us fast until the end. Father, some of us have experienced that this last week in a variety of ways. I pray that you would uh, inscribe those words on our hearts now as we begin to study what you have for us out of one of Paul's letters, one of his last letters to a church that was very, very much in need of being set in order. And so, Father, we take heart from these words and we are instructed by them and pray that you would now help us to see ourselves in this passage and to glean from it the things that we need so that we can, until you come, be those who will live for you, be zealous for you, in everything that we do and say and even think. We thank you and praise you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the book of Titus. If you would turn to chapter 1 and slide your finger down to verse 5, you have the sermon notes in front of you, outline that is, and uh, we will walk our way through our study Uh, that we have just started this last week in the book of Titus. If you'll remember with me now, uh, Paul wrote these pastoral letters, pastoral epistles, and he wrote two to Timothy. He wrote 1 Timothy, and then either very quickly after that or maybe even concurrently with that, uh, he wrote to Titus, another young pastor on the island of Crete, and then after that he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. Timothy, and we will be going through those, not in the order in which they're listed in the the Bible, but we'll be going through those chronologically. I think this passage is important, and I think this entire series on the pastoral epistles is important because we live in a day that's much like the day in which Timothy lived, in which Titus lived, in which Paul lived. We live increasingly in a culture that is called a cancel culture. That's why we need to sing songs like, He will hold me fast. Because our culture will be quick if you believe in the wrong way according to them, they will be quick to cancel you. Now, let me just give you a flavor for the culture in which Titus was ministering. We have this from the first chapter, not only in this particular passage, chapter 1, verses 12, but also chapter 3, verse 3. Now, this is interesting because Paul, and we'll talk about this a little bit more thoroughly in the future, but Paul is actually quoting a poet or a prophet from their own culture. And he is saying, and Paul is saying that he agrees with him, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Is it any question why that in the very first part of the greeting to Titus, he said that we serve a God who never lies? Why? Because Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, not very complimentary. For we ourselves, he says later, he includes himself in this, in case you are tempted to think that those Cretans were just another breed than we are, Paul said, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And you may be canceled by culture for simply believing the truth 
and saying the truth that you believe. But you will never, ever be canceled from your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is the promise of the first part that we went over last week. I was reading a story about that. You think cancel culture is something new? Let's go back to the 4th century A.D., the late 4th century. A preacher by the name of John Chrysostom, who was standing before ostensibly a, get this, a Christian empress named Eudoxia. The problem was that John was not preaching the way that she thought he ought to be preaching. He was preaching the truth about God's wrath on sinners and the only way of salvation being Christ alone. And so she began her threats that she would cancel him. Here is the dialogue that took place as John stood before her. She said, I will banish you. He said, you cannot, for this world is my father's house. She said, I'll take away your treasures. He said, you cannot, for my treasure and my heart are in heaven. Well, well, then I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. He said, you cannot, for I have a friend who is with me from whom you cannot separate me. And lastly, she said, then I will kill you. John said what saints have said throughout the ages, and I hope you can say this, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. And then he went on to say, I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. Now, folks, the time for us to brace ourselves, to stand strong in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is before we are faced with opposition and persecution like that. And one of the primary ways of ensuring, this is what Paul wanted to do, ensuring that the church you attend, see, we've got to bring this up to date, up to ourselves, the church that you attend is in order and has qualified elders that are leading the church is to listen to the words that we are reading here. Jan and I were walking yesterday. We try to walk every day, and as you might imagine, we are assessing the yards in the neighborhood. And there were there, there are yards. We stopped in front of one yard. A lady was out working in the yard. We complimented her because you can tell she works hard. She and her husband. And then there are yards that we pass, and we just say a prayer. A.W. Tozier wrote something about the church that is a lot like those yards that we see. Let me read it. You, you just read along with me. It's the first quote. I don't normally read these quotes, but this one was so good. Let's just read it together. Each generation, listen to me, we're talking to the youngest among us as well as the oldest. Each generation of Christians must look to its beliefs. While truth itself is unchanging in the minds of men, uh, excuse me, is unchanging, the minds of men are porous vessels out of which truth can leak and into which error may seep to dilute the truth they contain. The human heart is heretical by nature. That's just true, folks. And runs to error as naturally as a garden to weeds. All a man, a church, or a denomination needs to guarantee deterioration of doctrine is to take everything for granted and to do nothing. The unattended garden will soon be overrun with weeds. 
The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. The church or denomination that grows careless on the highway of truth will before long find itself astray, bogged down in some mud flat from which there is no escape. How can we make sure? How can we make sure we don't fall into that? You just heard Dozier say the easiest way for that to happen is just to do nothing. So does Paul give Titus an indication of what might be done on the island of Crete that could speak to Heritage Baptist Church today? You bet he does. And you see in front of you an outline that we'll just walk through, read these scriptures, comment on, and we will apply. For churches to be healthy, point number one, for churches to be healthy, they must be set in order. What in the world does that mean? And have godly leaders. Now, you might change a little word right there. I'll get to this in just a minute. For churches to be healthy, they must be set in order by having godly leaders. Paul says to Titus, this is, this is why I left you. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is non-optional. Paul knew this. This is scary. I thought about leaving this out because of the because of the obvious focus and the burden that it puts on me, and I wasn't sure I wanted it, but it's true, along with the elders and along with people who lead in this church. But this church, we're not talking generically about any church out there. Paul knew that this church will never rise above the spiritual attainment of its elders. Rarely, if ever, do you see a church that rises up and challenges an ungodly leader. Look at the kings of Judah. Now, the kings of Israel, they were all a mess. And what happened? The Israelites never. It started with Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and they never rose above the level. They were the first to be carried away into captivity. But if you go through the kings of Judah, there were some good ones and there were some bad ones. And watch what happens to the people. When there were good ones, the people would rise up and follow the man who was leading them to destroy their idols and to do false worship. But whenever a king came into power that rejected the ways and sinned in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, guess what happened? The people followed, and they went down the tubes. So what does Paul do? He begin, here he is. He's just given this wonderful introduction in verses 1 through 4. And the first thing out of the chute, Paul, a church planter, to Titus, who was following up on these church plants. Now watch this. I find it instructive that he did not say, go in and find a, a storefront that you can use or you can rent. Go in and build a building. Go in and make sure that and some of these structural things are done. He said, Titus, there's one thing that I want you to do. Actually, and it's in two parts. I want you to go and set in order what remains and or by appointing elders in every town because in every town, that means every church. And this was not just for churches in Crete, but this is a pattern that's given throughout the, the New Testament. We fell away from it around the 3rd, 4th century, and even to this day. We, folks, it, it's amazing. Some of you who have been here and heard me teach about elders, I have lamented that our denomination has largely... We have fallen away from our moorings in terms of church leadership. 
the Bible, the Bible is not unclear. In fact, it is abundantly clear on this. Let's look at this. We're not going to spend a lot of time because we talk about this from time to time. After they had preached the gospel, watch this. This is the first missionary journey. Paul has gone out. They have established churches. They're on their way back. How in the world are they going to encourage these young churches? Meeting in homes, small little groups of brand new believers. Yes, perhaps some of them had been trained in, in the Jewish culture and the Jewish ways. They, they knew some of that. But after they had preached the gospel, they returned strengthening them. I left out a really important part of this because I wanted to focus but they strengthen them by telling them that they're going to encounter opposition and persecution. Through much tribulation, you will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a parenthesis. But the real thing I wanted you to notice, how did they encourage them? By appointing, watch this, elders, plural, in every church, singular. You know, it's amazing how you can just read through this, elders in every town, town slash church, because back then, every town that Paul had been to, they only had one church. Now, just apply that to today. If you were going to, if you were going to remain in the body of Christ and keep growing, you had, you had to have God elders who were leading you, but if you got sideways or if, if, if you got out of sorts a little bit, there was not another church in that town to go to because you weren't satisfied with the first, I don't know what you'd call it, apostolic church of St. Paul. There's one church in each town. That's where the enclave of God's sheep would gather together. But they needed something. They needed to have order. They needed to be set in order. And so they needed elders, plural, in every church, singular. Ah, there probably are other verses, like Philippians 1.1, that also talks about this. Paul and Timothy, this uses both of the offices that we have because this is the New Testament pattern. Bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints. How many saints were there in Christ Jesus in Philippi? How many? We don't know, but it's plural, okay? Many saints, one church, including the overseers or elders. Is that plural? Anakins, which also is plural. God's heart for the church is to be strengthened by being set in order. That's an interesting word. Not going to get into all of the Greek about this, but I love doing word studies. That word set in order comes from a, 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 a compound word, two words put together. One of the words is orthos. Does that sound like any word? that you're familiar with in English today, orthos. How about orthopedics? Hmm. The straightening of bones. How about orthodontics? The straightening of teeth. And so he was saying to Titus, there are things that need to be straightened out in the churches that are on the island of Crete. And I wonder what he would say today if he were writing to the churches in America. Do you think he would say the same thing? There were things that need to be straightened out. Things that need to be made orderly. Please listen, young people, older people. There is a need absolute importance of order in life. Order in the church, order in the home. That's why, children, when your mom tells you 
to make your bed every morning. She's not out just to make your life miserable. She knows the importance of having order and maybe those things that start at the very beginning of the day. And that's why she is imposing that upon you, although sometimes you feel that it is torture to make your bed. Order is needed in the workplace. Order, oh my goodness, is needed in the government. Can I get an amen? Order is needed in denominations. And how do you ensure it? Now, now please get this. Structure, according to Paul, ought to support what God is doing in the church. It shouldn't become something that becomes so big and so unwieldy and so focused upon that that's what the church supports. Did you get that? Now, here's what follows. We're going to run through this. So all we need to do to get elder, I mean, order in the church is to appoint elders, right? I see a few heads that are shaking. You anticipated that. No. The answer is not elders. The answer, drum roll please, is qualified, biblically qualified elders. Elders whose character exemplifies that they have a deep walk with and a pursuit of the things of Christ. They're not perfect, but they are pursuing it. Their character is out there for all to see. Character is everything. Did you know you can earn and lose jobs? And again, young people, listen to me, older people. You can can earn and lose jobs simply based on character and not your expertise. I've known plenty of people who were very, very capable, but their character, they're hard to work with and people wouldn't hire them. Character is everything. Businesses succeed or fail based on the character of their employees. My grandkids love to eat at Chick-fil-A. Anybody else like to eat at Chick-fil-A? I see some hands there. Might give an altar call on this one. And I don't know if he's in here or not, but I was thinking of this this morning when Sean and Billy McGill celebrate, celebrate their anniversary. If he has anything to do with it, they'll eat at Chick-fil-A. I like their food, okay? It's, sorry, Chad, it's, it's not the best in, in the world, okay. But as a grandparent, you want to know why I love to take my grandkids to Chick-fil-A? I have, now I'm sure they are in other, other kind of circumstances. I have never met a grumpy Chick-fil-A employee. Never. And you know, okay, everybody say it with me. When I tell them, thank you, what do they say to me? My pleasure. In fact, I intentionally sometimes try to state something in the way where they will have to tell me, thank you, so I can say back to them, my pleasure. (laughs) I really do. I love it. And they'll look at me like, now, it's my understanding, Chad, you have a Chick-fil-A franchise. That this come, this is what I understand. This comes from headquarters. It's not, it's not in the, the the book that you have to say it. Is that correct? My pleasure. Nuanced in that way. 
But here's, here's the thing. It's the corporate culture. And I'll guarantee that part of the success is not just the, the quality of their meals. Part of the success is because of the, at least the outward character of their employees. And what if the church, and we do, I, I think Heritage has a culture, not perfect, but I think we have a culture that's largely like that. If you come and if you stick around, if you get involved, and I think of other churches around us, what would happen if they had a culture like that? And what does it start with? Point number two, God's requirements. Do you see that on your outline? For leadership in the church begins with a man's marriage and his home. Verse 6 says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And this echoes, now let me say this, that thing about believers, about elders having children who are believers Every parent, please listen, every parent would do anything he could to make his child a believer, right? But that's, that's a God thing. You put into them, you put the gospel into them, and, and God will save them. It's a joint effort. God is more sovereign than you think he is, but you are more responsible than you think you are, but you can't save your own kids. Now, you know that. And so what this, if you line it up with what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, is basically this, that the man who is appointed as an elder must be one who manages in such a way that his children, while under the roof, are faithful. And normally that will mean that they, it grows out of a faith a true saving faith, but that they are faithful and not able to be charged, as they say, with debauchery or insubordination. See, the qualification for elders is not perfection. It's attaining to these things. And let me just say this. It's not just about elders. All of these character qualities, all of these requirements are to everyone in the church. The only thing that is really different that you may not be able to do to be an elder is the ability to teach in such a way that you can recognize and rebuke, expose those who teach false doctrine. But every one of these character qualities are to be found in every person, the whole church. And I'll quote another quotable guy, D.A. Carson, one of my favorite guys to quote in that second one there in your notes, your outline. The most extraordinary things about the biblical prerequisites for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. Listen to what he starts out with, and this is absolutely key. It is obvious that the very first requirement is that an elder be a man. You just go through, anyone is in the masculine, the husband of one wife, more literally, a man of one woman, or as you've heard it said before, a one-woman kind of man. So when you're looking for an elder, what's the, what's the first, right out of the chute, above reproach? And he must be a one-woman kind of man. That, that means that when Titus went into these towns and he was he, what, this was not a search team. It's amazing how that we have added on all of these things. He just said, go, Titus, and discover. Go into the church and discover. Ask around and then appoint the guy that's a one-woman kind of man. That's the first requirement. The issue is not is he married, 
but I'll put it like this, is he really married? Is he a one-woman kind of man? Now, I'm not going to get into all of the, the, the things that could be said about that. I want to refer you back to the series that I did when I was preaching through 1 Timothy. It was along about the 12th sermon where I talked about the roles and the responsibilities of men and women, and we talked about the, the responsibility of headship. And sadly, some men, I, I, I hope I don't say many, particularly in this congregation, sadly, some men in our church and in our churches are not known for marital fidelity. I'm talking about eyes. I'm talking about thoughts. I'm talking about actions. Character always comes out, you know? Character always comes out in behavior. So leaders in the church must be, must be, understood to be attaining to that biblical headship that the Bible talks about. What is biblical headship? It is a God-like, that means spirit-filled, husband and also, in this context, father who is leading, who is providing for, who is protecting their wife and their children with purity and integrity. Somebody asked me recently, what's your best marital advice that you could give to a young couple? In, in one sentence, I'll, I'll put a semicolon, so it's one sentence and not two. Husbands, love your wife more than you love yourself. The next part of that is, and love Jesus more than you love her. which will always keep you on the right path. Most, most husbands I know are willing to die for their wives. An elder needs to be the kind of man who is willing to live for her. He will reject the two sides that I see men, the, the ditches that I see men fall into, that I can fall into. Let's face it, guys, every one of us can fall into this kind of thing, either a hostile domination or indifferent passivity. Paul says to, to, to Titus, you go in and you look for a guy who will lovingly lead and provide for and protect If I'm meddling, I'm meddling with me because my wife knows me. She sees me. She's interacted with me for 50-plus years now, 50 years almost of marriage. But guys, we, we, we've got to be, church, we've got to be honest. We've got marriages that are on the ropes. What do we say to our young couples? We've got three young couples that are right now getting ready to be married very soon. What am I supposed to say as a leader? Am I supposed to say, I hope you'll make it, but you probably won't? But good luck anyway? When I do a, a, a wedding, Kiavi, you and Barbie, I know are here, maybe some others that I've married, Joshua and Elizabeth, and I say, the, I, I say this, this to to, to every couple that I counsel, I will make you a money-back guarantee. All right? Money-back is just a joke. I'll make you a guarantee from Scripture that if you will commit to and work to be the man that God has created you to be, you will be the kind of husband that you need to be for your wife. And vice versa. That requirement is huge. And we, we could just stop there, sing several verses of just as I am and go home. But we won't. 
We're going to finish the message. Point number three. God's requirements for leadership in the church have to do with putting away fleshly vices and possessing godly virtues. Hang on, here we go. Negative, positive. Th- these are, this is so simple. But simple is not easy, okay? For an overseer is God's steward. You have a responsibility, must be above reproach. Second time he's used that. In other words, if somebody makes an accusation against you, it's just not going to stick in an objective court of law. He must not be arrogant, prideful, full of pride. He can't be a narcissist. I'm always right. You're always wrong. Don't get a leader like that. Not quick-tempered, ready to fight at the drop of a hat or a drunkard or violent. There's the pugnacious or greedy for gain. That's the only reason some are in it because they're hirelings. But here's the positive. He must be hospitable, welcoming, have a welcoming heart to to all, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, not perfection, but upright, holy and disciplined. Now, by the way, these are orders. This is not just the, the, the biblical corporate culture. These are orders from headquarters. And the man of God that Titus is looking for to put as leader of the local church there is always, always going to demonstrate that idea, that daily attitude of putting off and putting on, starting with his wife and with his family. Let me just give you a couple of other verses. You may want to write these down, support verses for this. And by the way, again, this is not just for overseers, elders. This is for everyone in the church. Put off your old self. Put on the new self. Titus said this, be zealous for good deeds. So Everyone here today, because you're a Christian, this is not an ought to be as if you're earning God's approval, but ought to be because you love Jesus and this is what you want to do. You seek to glorify Him with every fiber of your being. You're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and you are denying yourself, taking up your cross daily to follow Him. And when you do that over time, to your wife, to, and we're talking about elders here, to your, we're talking about men, and we're talking about women and, and, and young people too, you can't hide your character. You can't fake character. Because if you're around somebody for long enough, it's going to come out. What you really believe will ultimately be revealed in your character, which must be shaped by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. Let's look at the last thing here. Wrap this up. God's requirements for leadership in the church have to do with the handling of God's Word to both instruct and protect the flock. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy Word as taught, so that he may able two things to give instruction, exhortation in sound doctrine, healthy teaching, and also to rebuke. That word can also be translated expose, to rebuke, to expose those who contradict it. Godly character is required of an elder, but so is the desire, get this, and the ability to be steeped in God's Word sufficiently using the whole counsel of God to equip the people of God and to protect the people of God from those who are going to slip in and teach false doctrine. And by the way, don't look for them to come in dressed in a devil's suit with horns. They're going to look good. They're going to look just like you and me. And so we have to be zealous for good works. We have to be zealous for the Word and for sound doctrine. Paul says, hold firm. The, new, the King James uses a word that I love, cleave. Hold the Word firmly. 
cleave to the word. And I immediately thought of an Old Testament illustration that I have always loved that I think illustrates this so beautifully. There were three mighty men of David, King David. There were other mighty men, but three headed the list. You didn't want to mess with these guys or get on the wrong side of David, okay? You didn't want to make fun of their names like Eliezer, the son of Dodo. You're just the son of Dodo. You didn't want to do that. He was with David at Pas Damim. Do you know where that is? That's where David fought Goliath. Here they are again. And there is this force of Philistines that were gathered for battle to such an extent that the Israelites ran all except for Eleazar, the son of Dodo. And what did he do? He did the same thing that saints throughout the ages, John Chrysostom, Others have done, others are doing in faraway places, being persecuted for the cause of Christ, giving their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He took his stand. This is what you want the man of God to do. This is what husbands need to do. In the midst of the plot, he defended and he killed the Philistines. He killed them all. In fact, and I, this is in the next verse, I think. Actually, I think I left it out. But it says the guys returned. All those guys that ran, they came back after the battle was over only to get the spoil. What a bunch of yahoos. Now, he had the right idea. Who gave the victory? The Lord God gave the victory. God is more sovereign than you think he is in the battle that you're fighting. But Eleazar, the son of Dodo, had to hang on to that sword. And we see the other side of the story saying exactly that. Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the, A the son of Aho Ahoi, was with David when he defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. The men of Israel withdrew. We see that again. Now look at this. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. King James, I love the way his hand clave, past tense of cleave, to the sword. Does that bring up any mental imagery? Now, I looked it up. We don't want to put too much in this read too much into it. Some say that, you know, when you're working, have you ever had, you're working and you're hanging on to something and your hand cramps and, and you, can't, you can't get your fingers loose and they, they, some people say that's a picture. You've been there, you've done that when you're working, you just can't get, you can't get, even though your arm is weary, boy, what an illustration. Why did he use the word cleave? That's the same word that is used of Adam leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife. That's a one flesh kind of thing. So intimately connected even though he was weary in the battle. Listen to this. Could this be an application for you? When you're weary in the battle, and what is the, the, the first thing that you need to cleave onto? Your hand doesn't need to let it go. What's the first thing you're tempted to let go? God's Word, God's promises from the God who never lies. Eliezer was able to be given the great victory from God because he did his part. God is more sovereign than you think he is, but you are more responsible than you think you are. So, yes, this is for elders, but yes, this is for everyone. 
of us that we cling on to God's word when we get weary, so weary in the battle. And we know it's not about physical swords or guns. We know that our spiritual weaponry is not of the flesh, but divinely powerful to destroy strongholds. And there could be some here today, you've got some arguments and lofty opinions going on right up here against the true knowledge of God, and it is clinging to the Word of God that will destroy those speculations. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There are probably some of you in this room that need to do that desperately. Take that thought captive. Cling to the Word. And then, of course, what is that sword? We know. Stand, therefore. We've been talking about taking that stand. Stand, therefore, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. An elder hangs on to the Word of God, takes his stand for truth, but then so should every man, every woman, every student, every child. But the elder must be able to not only be in the Word, but be gifted to instruct and exhort God's people. He loves God's people, and he loves to see them saved and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get into it next week, but what, were the, what was the main opposition that Titus was instructing these elders about? Who did they need to come against and expose and rebuke? We're going to find out it was a group of people called the Judaizers. Huh. Really, really close to Christianity. In fact, I mean, they were so close. But here's what they did, and we'll get more into this later. They perverted the gospel by being Jesus plus people. They didn't negate Jesus. They said, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you just got to add some things. Keeping the Mosaic law, circumcision, all the rest of that. And Paul said, that is another gospel. He was trying to ensure the true gospel that is the only help and hope for salvation and growth in sanctification. The gospel that says God created you. He's not an add-on. God created you to glorify Him, but you haven't. You've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not, uh, why should I believe God for what He can do for me? It's you have been created to glorify God and you haven't, and you're under the judgment and wrath of God. The good news is good news because Jesus was revealed as the Messiah who bore the wrath of God for sinners, for rebellious sinners like you and like me. And by repenting and turning away from sin, playing God and, and fighting God. And by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you can be saved. It's Jesus plus nothing. And I want to invite you today, in your heart, first of all, we're going to stand here in a minute and we're going to sing, but, but every person in this room must respond to the word that's been preached. And I would pray, oh, how I've prayed that if you're here today without Christ, that you would see your need for the gospel. And that Jesus is not just an add-on. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior who can save you from your sin, justify you, 
sanctify you and prepare you for an eternity in heaven. And I pray that you would respond by repenting and turning faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's, uh, Lord, there's just so much here. And we've uncovered just a few things today, tried to apply them. And I pray that, um, Father, my words would be um, minimized, but that your words would be maximized. That your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word, drill into our hearts, and effect change, maybe the change of justification, sanctification. There are people, no doubt, in this congregation today who need to be born again. I pray that would happen today. And I pray further that there are people who need to grow in their process of sanctification. I pray that would happen today as people yield to you, take every thought captive, seek to live for your glory, be zealous for good deeds. I pray not only that men and women in their marriages would be sanctified and even healed and reconciled, I pray also that families, parents and children would also be restored where needed. And above all, that you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord, that I I believe that you're raising up generations of uh, young men who will lead the church. And I pray that right now, today, would be the start of the development of their character so that someday they could be appointed not only to lead by instructing in sound doctrine, but also exhorting, revealing, rebuking those who oppose it. So thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.